4: W.H. Wisecarper, a
2: recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Wisecarper, a former National Security Advisor and Counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W. H. Wisecarper, Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Wise Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whwisecarver.com. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
5: Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, they last until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better. <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docs were busy overseas with World War One. Today, we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus, well, then stay six feet away. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. Cause we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine, the will to and a Super bad, transmittable Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
6: The Tom Sumner Program.com.
1: From the times of the show
2: Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is an author from a little bit closer to home. She is uh, from the Flint area, and this is her debut novel. It's called The Gold Persimmon. Her name is Lindsay Mirbaum, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to the show.
7: Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Lindsay, did
2: I say your name okay? I'm terrible with names. <laughs>
7: You know, um, people pronounce it all different ways. I usually say it "marebaum." You know, like a horse. But um, you're good. You're good. I think people got it.
2: Okay. Well, marebaum. In any event, and I'll and I'll try and have it right by the time we're done talking. Um, Don't worry. But let me let me ask about something here. The book is called "The Gold Persimmon." How would you categorize? The book, or or um, what what genre would you put it in? Is it for young adults? Is it uh, you know for a specific audience? Is it um, a mystery? You know, what? Tell me a little bit about the book.
7: Yeah, so the gold persimmon is definitely for adults. It is literary fiction, but it also falls into a number of other categories such as it's a bit suspenseful, it's a bit mysterious, it's a bit speculative. I think one of the best ways to categorize it is as feminist horror, which is what the publisher, Creature Publishing, publishes exclusively. And for those who have never heard that label before, basically feminist horror is fiction exploring dynamics of gender and stories about gender using the tropes of horror. So, for example, there might be monsters, there might be ghosts, there might be mystery... There might
2: be, you know, other unsettling aspects. So, uh, that, you know, I talk to people who say, no, it's not horror, it's suspense. No, it's, you know, um, it's right. a thriller. It's not a suspense novel. And, and so I, I always ask, and I, and, and I know at the end of the day, it's just telling a story
7: hmm Right. Um, I think I think this book, because it bridges different categories, it makes it harder to categorize. Um so yes, in the end it's telling a story and when writing it, I didn't write with the intention of, okay, and here's where I'm gonna scare the pants off the readers. You know, <laughs> it was fun. Really like I, you know, this isn't this is a reader's introduction to the bizarre world of my imagination. This is the vestibule basically. And so this is a story that is sad in, in some ways it's about grief it's about loneliness it's also about sexual awakening and young people in the state of age um and so parts of it are unsettling parts of it are mysterious it's not it's not a thriller um there isn't a lot of violence there isn't a lot of you know blood and guts and that kind of stuff um there are speculative elements such as a mysterious fog and in some ways, it's also a little bit of a ghost story. So in that sense, I feel like, you know, this is traditional literary fiction in the sense that you don't know exactly what you're getting, but you know you're getting a story that's, that's driven by a desire to communicate and to talk about these issues. Um, and so in that sense, that's part of why it sort of defies categorization. But yeah, it's, it's not traditional horror. Um, some people, you know, oh, am I going to? scared am i going to have nightmares and i say the most terrifying thing about it is really that it deals with gender dynamics and and sexism and and that's very real in our experience and and very scary on the day-to-day as well regardless of uh, whether or not it appears in fiction
2: well let, let me ask you this um this is your first novel but it's not your your first writing experience um what have you been
7: writing Oh, boy, what haven't I? Um, so <laughs> this is my first published novel. I wrote a couple other novels first before this one. Um, you know, you're know, not the first
2: p- writer that's told me that, Lindsay, and some of them have been New York Times bestsellers for dozens of issues.
7: Yeah, well, I think that if you're going to publish a novel, it makes sense to do some practice. It's a big undertaking to write a full novel. It's, it's a rather unwieldy thing to be tasked with this, this big story that you're trying to complete. And so it makes sense to do a little practice, but there might be some runners-up. Um, but in addition to that, I've also published a lot of short stories, and I think that's true for a lot of novelists, too, because that tends to be how we learn to write fiction is through writing short stories. And I also publish essays, and I've done work as an editor, um, and I publish cocktail recipes. So I'm doing it all. You know, I'm just diving right in.
2: That's what that means. <laughs> I read somewhere where you were um Oh, what was the phrase? I th- I thought I had it here in my notes. Oh, the high priestess of home mixology.
7: Yes, yeah, that's me. Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> therein therein lies the explanation to that. You've done a lot of writing about uh drink mixing and, and drink recipes and so on. Um, but, Lindsay, how long did it take to write this novel? And where where did the story come from?
7: Um, I think the story came to me about 10 years ago, honestly. I had just moved to San Francisco. Um, I'd been living before then in Latin America for several, several years. I'd gone through pretty intense breakup. Um, I was working as a, a live-in chef slash personal assistant slash ghostwriter for, for this rather eccentric couple out in San Francisco. Um, so my life was at a real crossroads, and I was building new relationships but letting go of other relationships. And I had this idea one day, what if there were a hotel to cry in? A hotel to cry in. That's all I had. I had this one idea. Um, and it, it fascinated me, and I spent a lot of time... that's pug-
2: what bars were for.
7: <laughs> 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 Nurse. Go down yeah, to the yeah. pub
2: and cry in your beer.
7: Right, right. I guess I wasn't doing that right then, because I was definitely going to different bars, but I wasn't crying into my drink. Um, yeah, well, that's you know that's all that's all tied in um yeah so i had this idea and i didn't really know what to do with it and it took me i'm not really even sure exactly how long it took me to create a finished story out of that idea because i was like who is in this hotel and then there's this other hotel and what's happening um and then you have to add on the time that it takes to do different rounds of editing um, once I found an agent to represent me and then, again, once I found a publisher to represent me. So in some ways, a book is never really finished until the publisher says, this is what we're publishing, and that's that. Um, you can right. still tinker. But it took, a number, it took a number of years, and I've since written other books that I'm working on that have gone a little bit faster, not necessarily because they're easier in some way, but I think that the, I, I definitely cut, had my work cut out for me with this one because it is a dual narrative story. There are two hotels within this book about strange hotels and the things that happen there. And I had a challenge of how to bring them together in some way. Um, I had the challenge of switching narratives and narrative voices. So I decided to take on a lot of things in this book that were really challenging. And it took me a long time. I really felt like I was wandering through a labyrinth. For years just trying to find my way to the center, but I did it, and I'm really proud of of the result. And I'm really grateful for all the editors I've had along the way who helped me hone the story and and you know fine tune it. Um, but yeah, I would say you know it took I don't know seven years something like that. <laughs> it took a long time.
2: Do you have a, a publisher then, Lindsay?
7: Um, yeah, so this book is published by Creature Publishing, which is a small, independent, women-run press based out of New York. And they pu- exclusively publish books that they describe as feminist horror, which is a rather broad category. So they've published a lot of really cool, interesting books. And they've been absolutely wonderful to work with and extremely supportive of my vision. So, yes, that is my publisher, Creature Publishing. They're awesome.
2: I was reading your biography and it refers to you Lindsay as a queer feminist author. How important is that um that identification to you? And and does it play a role in the in the story The Gold pers- uh, Persimmon? Yeah,
7: um I feel like that's a really important sort of framework to offer readers that lets them know a little bit about what to expect from my work and what my work might focus on and that is absolutely relevant to this book. The Gold Persimmon, as I said, is a lot about grief. It's about loneliness. It's about sexual awakening. But it's also a lot about gender dynamics and the expectations we put on ourselves and other people based on this, this concept of binary gender and the roles that we feel we're supposed to fulfill to fit into that. So there is a lot going on in the book about um, relationships, marriages, um, what happens in a crisis and how gender dynamics play out in a crisis, um, what happens when someone is non-binary and doesn't fit the traditional vision of binary gender. All of that is explored in this, in this book. So I feel that the queer feminist part is very much relevant. And also there's a whole cast of queer characters in a variety of ways. And um, this book doesn't really, you know, cater so much to the cis, uh, straight gaze, it it talks about queer characters within their worlds from their perspective in a way that I think could be really eye-opening for those who are less familiar with the queer community and that hopefully will be really resonant and will really help readers who are in that community feel seen and represented or also perhaps be in on the joke at various points um, You know, as these characters are talking about themselves and exploring their own identities.
3: or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters.
8: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19,
3: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
9: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: More with author Lindsay Maribald straight ahead. And, and I, I bring that up not to uh, put you into any particular identity category or anything but really as a way Mm -hmm. to warn readers this isn't going to be romeo and juliet no (laughs) it's
7: definitely not and and
2: and that doesn't that isn't necessarily a bad thing at all you know it's just i i I think it's just better if people know hey we're going to explore something a little different you know if, if we pick up this book um Which begs the question, is suspense and and loneliness and all of these emotions any different for people in the queer community than in any other community?
7: Yeah, I would say no. I mean, I would say that the quintessential human experience and these emotions are certainly not experienced differently. What brings them out um, what causes the grief to accumulate or what causes these feelings of loneliness. That might be different for sure, yes, um, because of the way that we treat each other and because of the way we view each other. But, of course, every human experiences essentially, you know, the same range of emotions. Um, it's just a question of what, what brings them out and how they're expressed. I think that has a lot to do with gender dynamics, um, including the inability to express those emotions, I would say, also has to do with our expectations about, for example, what masculinity means and what it means to be a masculine person.
2: When did or does the book come out, Lindsay?
7: The book actually came out on October 5th, so it is widely available from pretty much any online retailer that you can think of, including my publisher's website, creaturehorror.com. Um, it's also on Amazon. Well, uh,
2: isn't um, it a law that if you publish a book, it has to be on Amazon? <laughs> I think
7: they yeah. Amazon is one of those, um, you know, for better or worse situations where you can't really get around your book being there and, and needing a presence there and needing responses there. Um, but at the same time, you know, we all acknowledge that Amazon has kind of a stranglehold on the on the publishing Business, so that's a that's a whole other interview, probably. But yeah, um, and also I do encourage people to go to their local indie bookstore to request the book or their local library. I just did a an event last week with the Flint local library, so you can also check out the book um, through your library. Oh,
2: that's interesting, Um, and and it's it's also interesting that Amazon includes in its. library of author uh, offerings um indie publishers and indie writers which uh, you know i'm not sure that they did right off the bat
7: yeah they they've really grown and changed and you know um it's kind of impossible to not have a relationship with them including for indie publishers so yeah i imagine that surprises some people but even really small presses They've got their books on Amazon, too, or, or they're they're trying to. Uh, just because that's how so many readers choose their books, how so many readers buy their books is through Amazon. But there are a lot of other options out there, too.
2: Have you had a chance to get much feedback from people who've read the book?
7: Yeah. Um, you know, there's always the, um, you know, less formal feedback that appears on Goodreads and Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, I've also had a number of reviews and interviews. And um, one thing that keep, people keep saying is that they, they have not read a book like this one before, which I take as a, a really sincere compliment. Um, to me, it is, it is, I feel really shocked about that, that I've produced something that's, that's not like what people have seen before. A lot of people have said the book is haunting, um, you know, a lot of people have said the book really stuck with them. But beyond that, the specific takeaways, uh, for example, if they focus on the parent child relationship or um, the relationship between Clyde and Edith and their burgeoning love affair, or if they focus more on um, some of the less likable characters, that's, that's really what is very interesting to me because every reader picks up on something different. Um, a part of the book is going to resonate with, with different readers in different ways. So I always find it fascinating to to see people's feedback and see what they took away from it, what their impression was, and also what specifically it was in the story that hit a chord for them because you just really don't know. It, it really depends on someone's perspective and experience because we're bringing that to the table every time we open a book.
2: <laughs> Lindsay, when you were writing the book and and – you know, you would pro- pause briefly and look up from the screen. Was there an audience that you imagined? Was there someone to whom you were telling this story in your mind?
7: That's a really great question. Um, honestly, I would say that the first reader I wrote this book for was, was actually myself. I think that uh, I've, I've taken the advice to heart to write the books that you want to see in the world. And this, I think, you know, connects with people's comments about not having seen a book quite like this before. Um, This was a story that I wanted to tell. It was a story that was inside me, and it was the kind of story I wanted to see in the world. And that, again, becomes relevant to the idea of queer literature, literature that tells stories in a queer way or explores stories through the lens of queer characters. Um, That was something that was really important to me. And so being lost in this labyrinth for years, I was just trying to figure out, like, how did I get this story out? And really, it came later for me thinking more about who is this going to really resonate with? You know, um, what are people going to think of this? And I, I just find again and again that every time a queer reader contacts me to say what this book meant to them or how they identified with it, I feel this enormous sense of accomplishment and also gratitude for that. Um, I think that, that that means more to me than anything because again, it is a experience of sort of writing from the margins where there aren't there isn't the same quantity of books out there that represent queer experience or that have um, a broad cast of queer characters. So it means a lot to me to see that through readers' eyes. But I started out, you know, telling the story that I'd always wanted to tell, telling the story that perhaps I was even afraid to tell. And and it grew from there organically.
2: The book, The Gold Persimmon, um, a, a pivotal character in the book is the check-in girl at the Gold Persimmon, which is a New York City hotel. Um, and And I very humbly remind you that I told you I'm terrible with names. Could you please tell me how to pronounce her name?
7: Her full name is Clytemnestra, which I get asked about a lot because Clytemnestra is a a figure from um, Greek mythology, really the Trojan War. Uh, She's called Cly, That's her nickname. It's a lot easier to say or type out than Clytemnestra. I would Um, think. Yeah. I noticed that reading it you know, at one stage of editing, I was like, man, this name is a lot. I, I might need to give her a nickname instead of the reader having to read Clytemnestra, Clytemnestra, Clytemnestra over and over. Yeah, so she is the check-in girl at the Gold Persimmon, which is one of the two very strange and strangely unusual hotels within this novel. And the Gold Persimmon is really designed for people to come and grieve in absolute solitude and opulence. So it's a rather unusual structure for that reason. And she is completely devoted to her work there, um, almost to a religious degree. It's, it's a, it forms a great portion of her identity. But Clyde forms a relationship with Edith, who is a guest at the hotel, which is a big no-no, because staff are not supposed to fraternize with guests. And this is her first real relationship. It's her first grown-up relationship. And it kind of uh, throws her life off kilter. And um, that is paralleled against the story of Jamie, who is also within a very strange and unusual hotel, also in New York City, this one called the Red Orchid. And that hotel is really designed for sex. It's, it's modeled after the Japanese-style love hotels, kind of like a deranged decorator's, you know, dream come true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's a and, picture that'll be with me all day.
7: Well, if you you open the book, you'll see there's some some weird rooms in that hotel. Um, And Jamie shows up at this hotel looking for a job, but also for a story, because Jamie considers himself to be a writer. And Jamie gets stuck there, because this fog, this inexplicable fog, descends on the city, and the people remaining in the hotel decide to stay put, and um, things kind of go haywire from there. So those are the two essential parallel narratives. And how they intersect is one of the mysteries of the book Um, and also how they don't intersect because it's not necessarily what you might expect. And so, yeah, it's really a lot about Jamie and Cly.
2: Do the hotels in the book um, exist in real life or are these hotels that, that you conjured up and where did the names come from?
7: They don't exist in real life as far as I know, though I did recently read that there is a hotel somewhere that's a a crying hotel, but it was a bit bit different from mine. Um, The gold persimmon uh, is, you know, obviously named for persimmons, which are a symbol of transformation. And also I find fruit in itself fascinating as symbolism because it's, It references life and abundance, but also death and decay because fruit is uh, not permanent. Fruit is, you know, second, but also it it will rot. And um, so I wanted to pick a name for that hotel that that referenced that symbol of transformation and and that dichotomy of of abundance and death. And the gold part, you know, adds this this additional note of opulence and, and wealth and beauty. And then the red orchid being a love hotel, a hotel that's designed off of the Japanese style love hotels, which are a real thing. Um, you can look up and you can find all kinds of wild pictures of like rooms that look like igloos and things like that. Um, that's a real thing in the world. Though so the red orchid is not real. It's, it's based off that. And it's kind of a combo of an upscale hotel with this Japanese concept of a love hotel. And there are orchids decorating the hotel, but I chose the red orchid because um, orchids are such sexy flowers, you know, uh, orchids actually come from the Greek word for, for testicles, and they resemble, you know, various body parts in their construction, um, but they're also just really weird alien flowers, uh, and it's hard to really even fathom that they have evolved the way they have, um, so I thought that that would be a great symbol of something sexy, but also unsettling and a little bit weird.
2: Well, yeah, they almost look like something that Dr. Seuss would have imagined.
7: Exactly, exactly, but but creepier, you know. I mean, they're beautiful, but orchids are weird. They're wildflowers. I mean, one of them, the vampire orchid, smells like rotting meat, and there's an orchid that looks <laughs> like a monkey face, and you know they've they evolved they've evolved to work with insects to to pollinate them in, in really bizarre ways. So they're kind of hard to believe. I mean, they're kind of otherworldly. Um, that they don't fully belong on this planet. And that's always been fascinating to me. I've always been really into orchids and also fruits and and unusual fruits. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give these hotels these names because it'll be something easy enough to say, easy enough to remember. It sounds good, but also there's some interesting symbolism there. You know, they're kind of referencing beautiful but also strange things at the same time.
2: When you're writing... um, and, and and i i realize this is your debut novel and it may change from book to book for a while but do you have a do you outline first and and stick basically to an outline or do you just sort of um binge write and and <laughs> let the story go where it takes you
7: Binge right That's a great expression. I'm going to borrow that. Um, I didn't, you know, I think with this book, I didn't necessarily have uh, an overarching outline, but when I wrote uh, my next book, I'm, I've not, I'm now on my next, next book, but I have a, another book that I'm working on that came, that I wrote after The Gold Persimmon. I absolutely created a very extensive, detailed outline of what I thought the plot should be, with lots and lots of notes on research and on different characters, um, in part just to keep it all straight in my head because otherwise you forget, like, oh, wait, has that character done that thing yet? And uh, (laughs) what color were his eyes? And, you know, um, it's a lot to keep track of when you're writing a book. But I I do think that the difficulty I had in putting together the story for the Gold Persimmon just just facing that challenge, uh, being a wonderful challenge, did really give me some some ideas of, okay, I'm going to structure more. I'm going to like write out more of an outline. So my next book, um, extensive notes, extensive outlines, and then the book I'm currently writing the first draft of. um, I'm doing that, but not to the same degree. I'm trying to let myself binge write to use your phrase um, and give myself a little space to have, have some fun and just explore a lot of backstory, but I still have a rough outline of what's going to happen. So I'm kind of, trying to, to meet a happy medium between planning to, to each detail and versus having absolutely no plan and, and just, you know, writing into the void. I'm trying to, to meet myself halfway.
2: Are you able to write full-time?
7: Um, I, not exactly. I try. <laughs> um, but, you know, I am always doing other things. Uh, so uh, we've talked about my cocktails. Um, I'm, uh, I've gone from being a, a home mixologist to a mixologist for hire now, creating cocktails inspired by books for authors and publishers and book boxes and book club subscriptions, et cetera. Um, I also write essays. Um, I also do some editing at times. So uh, I would say it depends on what else is going on in my life, but I aim to write as close to full time as I possibly can because i just have so many stories i want to tell and i want to get them all out before, you know. Are you a pretty I, are not you, here
2: anymore. Are you a pretty disciplined writer, Lindsay? Do you, you know, sit down at a certain time and you're going to you're going to work from this time to this time and try to get these many words written or these many pages done? Or do you just um Go off as as I put it, and and just binge write. You 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 get a little time, you start writing, and you're just there until you get to the point where you can't write anymore.
7: My long term habit has really been to require certain things of myself, um, kind of similar to an, to an exercise routine, right? So. I will tell myself, okay, I have to write for this many number of hours per day or per week, or I have to produce this number of words this week. Um, Kind of giving myself some parameters to go off of. Because I love those moments where you just feel inspired and you start binge writing and it's just coming very naturally. But as a lot of writers would tell you, most of the work doesn't happen that way. You have to force yourself into the chair, chain yourself to it, and you can't get up (laughs) until the work is done. So it's a lot of sheer force of will getting myself um, into that space and kind of slogging through it. So, yeah, I would say I'm pretty disciplined. I would say I kind of have to be because otherwise there's always something else you can be doing, um, (laughs) something that might be more fun. Because even though we writers, we love it and it's what's inside us, it's what drives us, it's a lot of work. (laughs) It's really hard.
2: (laughs) Somebody asked Stephen King once, it wasn't me, unfortunately, but they asked him if he wrote, on a schedule, or to the muse? And he said, oh, always to the muse. But fortunately, the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock.
7: Oh, well, la di da Yeah, I would say the muse doesn't show up at 9 o'clock every day, but I still need to get my butt in the chair anyway, you know. And there are certain things you can do to try to get yourself more into the mood, like certain music or, you know, kind of, setting the scene for yourself. Um, I get really inspired by what I'm reading. So if I'm reading something that really makes me just want to dive into language, that that helps. But you can't always control those factors. So I think in the end, you have to find some kind of schedule of some sort that works for you, whether it's, okay, every time I'm waiting for my kid at soccer practice, I'm going to write, whether it's, okay, I'm going to write at my desk on my breaks, which I did for years. There's an acknowledgement in my book about, Thank you to all my bosses who didn't notice or didn't care that I was writing at my desk <laughs> for years. Um, you know, everyone has a different system because most of us don't have the luxury of just sitting at a desk all day and writing. We always have other things we're doing, and, and the business of being a writer interferes with that as well in terms of marketing and promotion and stuff. Um, so you got to do what works for you and not guilt trip yourself about it. But I'm now back to a plan of um, I need to work on my next next book, for about eight hours a week. I'm starting with that. It will probably go up incrementally, but I like to set my goals for myself, you know, similar to, uh, okay, I have to do this many number of workouts this week. It's the same kind of thing.
2: Well, Lindsay, I really appreciate you spending this time with me and, and sharing some of your thoughts about writing. And I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past, present, and future. Um, Lindsay, do you have a website?
7: I sure do. Um, you can find me at lmaribom.com. Another really great way to check out what I'm doing and what I'm reading and what I'm mixing up cocktail-wise is to follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Pick Your Potions. I post all kinds of stuff about my events and what I'm drinking and what I'm reading, so that's a really good way to follow me and of course I link to my websites and all of my social media profiles
2: well Lindsay thanks again and keep up the good work
7: thank you thank you so much it's been a pleasure
2: take care that was uh, Lindsay Merbaum she is the author of The Gold Persimmon and we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead
1: I have to lay low for a while Sad. We're all in for a bumpy ride. I'll we'll see you on the other side. It's not the same without you here. I hold on to this phone sometimes i for you a night kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side And I'll meet you with arms open wide. See you on the other side. See you on the other side. See you on the other side. And I'll meet you with arms open wide. See you on the other side.
4: Armchair Politics is going to
2: hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you're invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan near Pinkney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too.
1: Is the unknown comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show
9: right now. And now. And now too. And even now.
10: Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID 19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part.
3: Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported.
2: The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
4: MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Another five-minute mystery. See if you can solve the case before the end of the
8: program. Well, Alice, one more block and you'll behold the Brooks household.
9: Two whole years, Jim. It just doesn't seem possible. It's been so long. You and Dorothy married and with a place of your own?
8: Ah, it's true, all right. Only too bad you haven't taken advantage of the old Brooks hospitality scene. Well, I'm
9: here now and I intend on having a perfectly wonderful time.
8: Now, here we are.
9: What a charming place this is.
8: Dorothy's probably on needles and pins waiting for me to get you here. Darling, it's Jim. Here's Alice. (gasps) Jim, look! What? Where?
9: There, on the living room floor. It's Dorothy, dead.
11: Mr. Brooks, I'm
9: afraid you and Miss Manning will have to submit to some routine questions. I'll be happy to help in any way I can, Inspector.
11: Thank you, Miss Manning. Now, Mr. Brooks, while we're waiting for some information I phoned for, I want you to tell me exactly what happened this morning.
8: Well, there's nothing much to tell. both my wife and I were quite excited, expecting Alice that is Miss Brand- Miss Manning here to visit us from Chicago. I was to wait until she called me at the office,
11: and you were there all morning?
8: Yes, until Miss Manning's train arrived, and we came out here. I had written Mrs. Brooks to
9: tell her that I would call Jim at the office as soon as I arrived. The train was an hour late. Maybe if I had been here earlier, it may have been prevented.
11: Hmm, well that remains to be seen. Apparently, Miss Brooks was sitting here in this chair putting red polish on her fingernails when she was shot from behind. The polish is spilled all over the carpet, and she was still holding the tiny brush in her hand. She must have recognized her attacker, and since she did not die instantly, she printed these three initials
8: here on the floor with the polish, D-O-C. D-O-C? I wish we could tell whose initials she was trying to reveal.
11: Yes, sir? You don't know anyone whose name would fit that? Positive. I can't.
9: Oh, oh.
11: Yes, Miss Manning, can you think of somebody with those initials?
9: Well, I, I... D-O-C spells Doc, and it's Mr. Brooks' nickname.
8: Why, it can't be. Yes, Mr. Brooks. I haven't been called Doc in over two years. It was a nickname I picked up in school. My wife didn't like the name and never used it. No one in New York even knows me by Doc. I've, you've got to believe me, Inspector.
11: It's the truth. Hmm. Well, that we'll see. Just a minute. Hello? Yes, Grady. Yes. I see. Well, it's sewed up anyway. Thanks. Well, you both will be happy to know our little murder is solved.
9: Oh, then... then it wasn't Doc after all?
11: No, Miss Manning, it wasn't Doc. I'm arresting you, Miss Manning, for the murder of Dorothy Brooks.
4: Why did the inspector arrest Miss Manning for the murder of Mrs. Brooks? In a moment, we'll hear... And now, back to our story.
9: How dare you arrest me! I was still on the train!
11: Your train wasn't late, Miss Manning. That phone call just verified the fact. You came out here, murdered Miss Brooks, returned to the station, and called Mr. Brooks to pick you up. That wasn't what really gave you away, though, Miss Manning. Too bad you didn't know Mr. Brooks was no longer called Doc when you printed those letters on the carpet. The next time you leave a name as a clue to throw suspicion, you'd better get the name right. But of course, there won't be a next time, will there, Miss Manning?
4: Join us again next time for another chance to solve a five minute mystery.
6: The Tom Program.com.
4: Hello,
1: darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the
10: Dark, and you're
1: celebrating
10: Schlocktober with Tom Sumner.
6: I go to church, I'm a really nice guy. I used to be such a sweet, sweet thing till they... Cause they read the papers They can't be seen with me And I'm getting real shot down They read the papers. You know, they can't be seen with me. And I'm getting real shot down and I'm feeling mean. So no more. Mr. Nice Guy. No more. Mr. Clean, yeah, yeah, yeah. no more. Mr. Nice Guy. this so He's sick. He's obscene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dog bit me on the leg today. My cat clawed my eyes My mom's been thrown out of the society's circle My dad passed a high I went to church incognito When everybody rose The Reverend Smith, he recognized me And punched me in the nose He said, no more, Mr. Nice Guy No more, Mr. Clean a nice guy they said he's sick
10: Oh, Tom
1: From the Tom Sunder Show.
2: Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Um, I want to say thanks to uh, all of the guests on the show today. It was a kind of a busy one. It went flying by. I want to say thanks to uh, Michigan writer Lindsay Merbaum, author of uh, The Gold Persimmon. And uh, before that, in the second hour of our three-hour tour, we had back-to-back National Geographic editors. We had... Uh, uh, Senior uh, senior editor and writer, Allison Johnson, talking about A Thousand Perfect Weekends. And then uh, we talked about the 21st century photographs from the image collection with the editor-in-chief of National Geographic, Susan Goldberg. And we started out this morning talking about uh, the concept of unfair as it relates to uh, businesses with uh, my guests, uh, Gorov, um, Batnagar and uh, Mark Manukas. So, that uh, I, I hope you enjoyed that. We were kind of all over the map, um, literally. And then wrapping it up with uh, <laughs> today's pick for Schlocktober. We had uh, the title track from Pat Boone's rock CD. No more Mr. Nice Guy. And uh, for those of you who don't know what Schlocktober it is, we pick a different horrible recording each and every day. And you you might love the artist, you might love the song, but the two together, not so much. Coming up tomorrow, Armchair Politics. It's Wednesday, which means Armchair Politics, but it's also Wednesday, the week of Halloween, which means Armchair Politics from Hell. And you're welcome to go to hell with us and uh, join us for our first in-person roundtable since before the pandemic and uh, we'll have um, jan worth nelson from east village magazine will be joining our roundtable regulars paul rosicki and henry hatter so come on down to hell near pinkney and join us for armchair politics in the, the meantime good night everybody
0: is a live variety show